Welcome to the Global Fluency Podcast. This is a space we've created to explore the components of diversity, inclusion, and cultural competency. Cultural competency. And all of the ways in which these components present themselves in our professional and personal lives. Be it language, culture, socioeconomic class, gender, race, ability level, age, or so many other identifiers. Everything begins with a conversation. conversation. Join us in this space where we seek to empower, educate, and uplift by creating authentic conversations on issues that affect us every day in every way. We look forward to you joining us in our discussions with everyone from thought leaders, diversity and inclusion strategists, students to CEOs in the corporate, education, and nonprofit sectors. Let's discuss how we can better understand differences and leverage commonalities. Let's do away with political correctness, explore ideation, build community, and create allies. Let's start an authentic conversation. This is the Global Fluency Podcast. And this is Bertine Crevacor West. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Global Fluency Podcast. My name is Bertine Crevacor West, and I'm delighted to be your host. Today, I have with me very special guest, Sandy Chavaria. Sandy, hi, and welcome to the Global Fluency Podcast. Tell our listeners where you're joining us from. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm joining you guys from my home, working virtually from home, but I work at the Georgia Center for Child Advocacy. I'm the Hispanic Outreach Prevention Coordinator there. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And we are both um, right here now in Atlanta, Georgia. So, um, and that's home for us. So yay, I'm so glad. Um, And it's so good to see you again. I feel like it's been a minute since we've had a chance to talk. And I'm so glad that you come on the show to share your expertise with myself and our listeners. So welcome to the Global Fluency Podcast. I'm going to tell everybody a little bit about you. Sure. All right, everyone. Sandy Chavaria joined the Georgia Center for Child Advocacy in 2015 and currently serves as the Hispanic Outreach Prevention Coordinator. In her capacity at the Georgia Center, Sandy oversees the prevention efforts in the Hispanic communities across the state, but primarily in the metro Atlanta area. She recruits and mentors bilingual and bicultural stewards of children, child sex abuse prevention, and Connections Matter GA on adverse childhood experiences, or what we call ACEs, trauma and toxic stress facilitators. So to help increase the awareness and prevention education in the Hispanic community. Collectively, they've trained over 2,000 Spanish-speaking adults on stewards of children programs statewide. She also oversees the newly formed Coalición Latina Más PAS, Prevención del Abuso Sexual, consisting of several community leaders. Prior to the Georgia Center, she has held several roles in youth-serving organizations. Sandy earned her degree in public policy from Georgia State University, so a special shout out to all of our GSU listeners. And in her free time, she enjoys taking her son to family festivals and volunteering for local civil and human rights efforts. So Sandy, once again, welcome to the Global Fluency Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. So now we're going to just dive a little bit into it. So I've told our guests already a bit about your professional background. Um, Tell me about what led you here and your experiences with the diversity and inclusion journey. Sure. What led me here? I have mostly always worked with youth, with kids, worked with minority communities. And 
I, when I was in school, I, um, I was learning about different issues that we had in our society. And one of the things that was on my list was human trafficking. Um, I, I learned about what human trafficking was. And I, I learned that those children who are at higher risk are children, to be human trafficked are children who have experienced child sexual abuse. Um, and I think that's kind of how my journey started with the Georgia Center for Child Advocacy, because we are, in my mind, you know, we're, we're helping with this issue. We're helping kind of solve or prevent or intervene with this issue because we're, um, we, we have direct services where we, we, we are directly working with kids and helping them on their journey towards healing. But my role is educating the community, educating the Hispanic community, what we can, steps we can take to prevent um, prevent child sexual abuse, prevent human trafficking, prevent a lot of things related to both those things. I love the work that you do. I, I'm saddened that there's a need for it, right? Um, yeah. But I do love the work that you do. And while we were off air in the green room, I was telling you that you do the good, hard work, which I'm so grateful for. Um, and that's another reason why I wanted to have you on the show, because especially now during the pandemic, it, it's become very challenging for so many people on so many levels, but it's challenging to even do the work that you do because you also have to deal with the pandemic as an individual in your personal life, right? And so as a parent as well, I can only imagine, well, actually I'm with you in that, but I mean, doing the work that you do and raising your son and, and dealing with schooling and all of that stuff. Like it, it's a lot. So I commend you on truly doing the good hard work that people don't get to see quite honestly. So I, I want to tell our listeners, you know, we are, we're grateful for you. And honestly, you're a bona fide superhero, really. And truly, <laughs> especially saving children, saving families and saving communities one person at a time. So that's another reason I wanted to have you on the show today. So let's talk about ACEs, as, as you mentioned before, adverse childhood experiences and how they're measured and your role in helping raise awareness. Because prior to meeting you, I really didn't know much about ACEs at all. So you and your, your organization were a huge source of information for me and, and, and brought awareness of this. Because although we hear about child sex trafficking, um, ACEs is something that, that I don't get to hear about. So share a bit with us about that and what it is. Sure. So ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. They are um, things that were on uh, the, what we called the ACEs study back in the late 1990s. It was conducted, it was a partnership between the CDC um, here in Atlanta and Kaiser Permanente in California. And what research found was, you know, both agencies were trying to we're trying to find more research, one on cigarette and tobacco smoking and one on weight loss. And what we were finding, there were programs and what they were finding it was that people were, you know, were losing weight on one, you know, with, with Kaiser Permanente or were stopping to smoke over here with CDC. And, and then they, they uh, saw trends of people, you know, losing the weight, stop smoking, but then they, um, again, went back to their patterns or their habits. And so researchers were really interesting and interested in trying to figure out why, why was that, you know, what's going on. So they ended up joining forces. They had a, being who they were, they had a, a long extensive history of people's health history. So they, they found some similarities in, in, in the groups. They, they came up with these 10 questions, which were, let's say they were the top 10 areas um, that topics of, of things that had 
happened to these adults when they were children. So they were trying to see if there was a correlation with things that happened in childhood um, and now in their um, to now adults. Mm-hmm. So there were 10 topics that were on there. There were three forms of abuse. So one was sexual abuse, one was physical abuse, one was emotional abuse. There were two forms of neglect, physical and emotional neglect. And there were five what we call household challenges that were also that were similarities amongst the participants of, of this, this study. So substance abuse, um, if there was uh, somebody in the family who was incarcerated, if parents were separated or divorced, if uh, there was a parent who um, had a mental illness, and if there was a parent, um, if there was uh, domestic violence in the family. So these were the 10 um, most similarities. And what they found was that 63% of the people from this original ACE study had at least one of these things. And what they found was that, so ACEs were common. What they found was that a lot of the, the more ACEs, so the more adverse childhood experiences somebody had, the more likely they were to, you know, they had a list of negative health outcomes or risky behaviors that people were engaging in. So you're talking about things with your health, like cancer, heart disease, diabetes. Uh, you're talking about risky behavior, like being an alcoholic, like having suicide ideation. They were more associated to so the higher the ACE number, the higher the possibility of negative or risky behaviors, and that they also had the ability to change our our, our lifespan. So, so they were they they found some really remarkable research from this this study. Wow, that sounds like such a first to have two those two organizations um, supporting this study. That is huge and has such wonderful implications on ways that first we can identify, but then also help populations affected by this. So we were talking about that 1998 TDC Kaiser study and um, the breaking down of just the categories into abuse, neglect, and household challenges. So let's talk about a few of those and and their specific effect on underrepresented and LEP populations. And for listeners um, to the show that are new listeners, LEP refers to limited English proficiency people. So people whose first language or language of proficiency is not English. So how do these 10 ACEs factors within these three categories, how do they affect underrepresented and LEP populations? So I think it's important for um, the listeners to know who the audience was who participated in this original study. Now, the study has been replicated throughout the country since since then, um, and we found similar uh, results um, across different cities, across different states. But the f- original audience of, of people um, were um, mostly white. They were mostly college ed- educated because they they had you know they had health insurance. They were with Kaiser Permanente. And then I think the second demographic, mostly white. Then I think the second was Hispanic and Latino. And then you had a couple of Black and African Americans and other um, ethnicities and races. So what we've learned from that is that when this is study has been done, you know, in communities where there are more, uh, I'm trying to use the words you used earlier, more underrepresented, um, typically underrepresented communities, minorities, Hispanics, people who speak English as a second language, Black, African, there are even more ACEs. So what these ACEs, um, these 10 things didn't cover, they didn't cover things like community violence. They didn't cover things like racism. They didn't cover things like 
you know, mass incarceration, poverty. They didn't cover any of the historical effects that have affected a lot of people, like slavery, the Holocaust. So there have been other studies, um, you know, using the ACE study as, as a sample, many cities throughout the many, many places throughout communities throughout the, the country have used, have added, have asked those first 10 questions, but also added on these other questions, like I said earlier, poverty, community violence, joblessness. And again, we're finding that in communities where that are, um, you know, that are mentioned right now with COVID that are, that are, that are a lot of health disparities. These are the same communities with even more higher ACEs. And um, we're, uh, we're trying to, trying to work towards um, bringing more education so that we can we can see what we can change and and policies and just how we think about trauma in I, general. I do think that that is one of the key components that you just mentioned. How we think about trauma. I think there needs to be a mind shift in what we what we recognize as trauma because a lot of these things in in these categories in the the ACEs um, study. I don't know that we've been taught to see those as trauma. Like we, we didn't identify those before, you know, um, trauma to some people might mean, you know, a physical injury or, you know, a bad memory of something for a psychological, you know, injury, but there are so many other components to what would be categorized as trauma, which is why I found this to be so fascinating. Um, trauma is perceived danger and it's very personal. You know, if we're talking about, if we, you know, all that's that's been recently going on in, in the current news, you know, if you're a teacher and if you um, have a career day and if you bring a police officer, a law enforcement into your class as, as you know, wanting um, him or her to talk about his job, you have kids in the classroom who have had negative experiences with law enforcement. For them, that could be a traumatic mm-hmm. class day, a school day. And, you know, their, their heart rate may start to go up. They may start to get sweaty. Um, they may start to get nervous. Maybe they're acting up. They're maybe, you know, because they want to get put out of class because they, they feel like uh, their body, even as adults, we don't sometimes recognize when we're going through, when we're kind of being re-traumatized, mm-hmm. but their body is saying, get me out of here. I don't want to be here. So when we talk about trauma and changing that mind shift, we talk about moving from not, you know, what's wrong with you, but what's happened to you. That's probably because that, yeah, because that's uh, that's the mind frame we want to bring with the education and the programs that we're we're delivering um, throughout the the state that are um, trying to help more people become more trauma informed. That's a real gem for people to, and myself included, to keep into the forefront of our minds. Right now, what's happening to you? But well, not what's wrong with you, but what has happened to you? And and I think that leads to a more compassionate and authentic conversation, right? And so yeah. that's where we need oh, to yeah. get to the heart of healing and, and really knowing how to not re-traumatize people. And something that, you know, when I was growing up, um, a lot of times we would have those show and tell in school where, you know, career day or something, and the police officer was raised to be a community friend, right? That's, that's what you would see. And even as a parent of a young child, um, a Black male child, I I want him to understand that, that a police officer is your friend, is meant to be your friend. But then we have so many incidents going on. And, and I always want to point out, there are fantastic police officers doing, you know, the good hard work every day to serve on so many levels. But then there are a segment of that population that is not. 
right? And so we can't tell the difference, you know, by looking at someone's uniform, right? And so it's that makes it so much more difficult, you know, to explain this this particular disparity to young children because we as adults yeah. process it, right? And yeah. so adults that are triggered, you know, they may not have the yeah. words. How do we expect kids to have the words, right? So that's why I think um, the work that you do is so important because we're giving this a name now, right? As opposed to the what's happening to such and such in the classroom. Like now we, we have a name for how we can refer to that. And I think when you're, we are able to call a thing, be it an emotion of any sort by its name, then we can dissect it and get to the heart of the matter, right? And so having said that, I want to ask you one question that that I hadn't considered before because it, it'll help give me a bit more context and our listeners too. What is the what is the range of the ACEs score? So what's considered a high score? What's considered a low score? So like I said earlier, um, from the original ACE study, we we saw that 64% of those who participated in this original study had an ACE score of at least one. Once we see people with an ACE score of typically four or more, we we see those the likelihood of those negative health outcomes kind of jumping up even higher. Now, one thing I forgot to add is, you know, this when we're talking about ACEs, we're talking that there's a higher risk. We're not saying that somebody who has an ACE score of, of four, you know, is, is destined to have right. a negative health. Um, we're not saying that at all. Because one of the other things that we talk about when we do our trainings is that, um, you know, ACEs are a risk for negative health outcomes, not a guarantee. But when we have those positive experiences, when children have those positive experiences with adults, they can help buffer those bad experiences. So in my example that I was just using about a teacher, you know, say the teacher, you know, maybe a school is a good opportunity to help kind of bridge, you know, negative experiences with the community. And, you know, in this example, we're talking about law enforcement, but there's other, you know, other, other other examples you can use. Right. But if the teacher is trauma informed, and she can recognize, you know, that Eric is in the back and he's, you know, shaking and sweating and, you know, maybe acting out a little bit. But if she's trauma informed and she's able to kind of calm him down and listen to him and recognize and acknowledge that maybe something has happened, but this is a different police officer, this just calm him down and bring him um, to a better place and, and, and turn this into a positive experience and be that trusting adult that moving forward, you know, Eric comes to and um, ask for help, those positive experiences are able to kind of, they're able to become a buffer for those bad experiences. So that's where you get a lot of people who, you know, who you hear all these stories from like celebrities and common people who have like, who had all these negative experiences growing up and kind of like the rags to riches story. But now they're, you know, this great business person or famous person. Um, because they probably had a lot of positive experiences, a lot of caring adults, a lot of um, caring people in their social circle. Um, so that's why it's really, really important um, that we as adults become trauma informed so that then we can go back and create those stable, nurturing relationships with, with our kids and help become that buffer to the negative experiences. Because although, you know, COVID is not one of the ACEs in the future, it could very well be added, uh, you know, as an ACEs when we're um, developing these screenings and these questionnaires. Wow. That, that's such a fantastic point. So again, you're, there's the risk of ACEs represents a risk and not, and, and which is a possibility of something occurring, but not 
you know, a certainty that this will happen. But I, I do so love what you said about um, just creating positive experiences, you know, in contrast to whatever adverse effects somebody is currently experiencing in the moment um, by having trauma-informed uh, personnel, in this case, teachers. So I really think that that can make, and I, I've seen that, I didn't have the words for it, right? Because I, I dare say yeah. most of us didn't have the words for it before, you know, people like you do the work that you do. But you, you do see that, you know, it takes somebody that A, that child trusts, and B, that person that they trust being informed about a particular topic to be able to help them through this. And it seems that it creates a new emotional pathway for that, that particular child, right? So that's, that's another relationship, but it also, I think is a coping mechanism for the next time, let's say using our example still, um, when they see the next police officer, they need not be afraid, you know, as they were before, it need not be a trigger for them because now there's an opportunity to get to know like for both of them, I would say the police officer and the child to get to know one another um, and have a brand new relationship, right? And that can that can set the course for someone's life. Oh yeah, excellent, excellent. Yeah. So, with regard to Aces, then what are some potential behavioral, physical, and mental lifelong and generational risk? Again, going back to the point about potential risk, what can happen? When this chain is not broken, when those buffers are not put in place, and when people aren't informed about ACEs, when they're not trauma-informed specifically. Yeah, so ACEs have the potential to to change our brain development. Um, they have the potential to impact our brain, to have, um, you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of toxic stress, which means prolonged stress. And and they're always kind of like on this fight, flight, or freeze mode. I'm not sure if you heard of that that before. I have before. heard of it, but one of my friends teased me about that because, and I'm just realizing now, this might be an ACEs that, that I experienced. And I'll, I'll just share it briefly because she laughs at me for it because we find it humorous now um, because I'm safe now. But there was a time with school shootings, as, as you know, happening in our country almost on a weekly basis. And one time I was at the post office and there was this young man there and he was just acting differently than, than I would, than I'm used to seeing people behave for, for the particular situation, his package, something about his package. I can't even remember exactly what, but then he became so irate and he was just like pacing back and forth. And I was just like, all of this for a package. I mean, maybe it was really important, but but then he seemed to escalate, you know, in his behavior and being a trainer that's not informed about this particular person. Right. I was just like, OK, I know that, you know, people behave in certain ways because of certain things. But again, I didn't have this vocabulary at the time. So I wasn't looking at it from this particular lens. And then at some point he kept reaching into his pocket and my mind was racing to, OK, where's the exit? What alternatives are there? Mm-hmm. In my mind, my brain, the voice in my head said specifically, you need to leave this post office right now. My body, on the other hand, was not moving at all. (laughs) And I realized in that moment, I had frozen. Whereas in the past, I would have thought to flee, which is always my first course of action. You know, when you're thinking about, you know, dangerous things, you got to get out of there or or fight if you have no other alternatives. But I just, that had never happened to me before. And I completely froze. And in hindsight, I think it's because I realized that the door was too far away. There was nothing underneath to hide in case 
he did, you know, decide to do something that would harm the rest of us. And I just, I had to like examine why I was, you know, when you do an internal assessment, I had to examine why I froze. And my friend kept laughing at me. And in hindsight, you know, we laugh now, but I was just like, okay, so now I add another F, you know, I thought I was a fight or flight person, but it turns out I'm a fight, flight or freeze person. Right. And I did not think I was one person that would freeze. And I think too, um, especially being a mom um, of a young child, I I think to myself, I can't freeze if he's with me. Right. So you kind Mm. of train your brain on certain things. Like what will I do in this scenario if this happens? And, you know, the police were called, which, which made it, you know, which calmed me down for a moment, but made it even scarier because it had escalated to that point, right? And this was just a random trip to the post office. So I share that long story to tell you that, you know, now I have the words for what, for why this was happening, but it does freak you out a little. So that's yeah. my fight, flight, or freeze experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know what? We can all have all three of them. And there's actually another one that we like to um, use called peas. So this is the the person who will try to get out of a situation sometimes by making like a joke about it or if they're in a situation where they're they're like uh, having a confrontation with somebody they'll try to make try to appease them you know try to mm-hmm. joke their way around it but there tends to be one sometimes two sometimes a second response that we tend to lean to fight fight freeze or appease response mm-hmm. but children who have experienced Ace, a lot of ACEs and a lot of trauma, and maybe they don't have the support uh, network, the healthy, um, the, the the adults in their circle who are being supportive and encouraging. They may constantly be in their you know go to stage. So, like when we in a classroom, for example, since we you know if we continue our, our example of, of of a school, this may be the ch- the child that you know is labeled as the bad child, the child who is all often. You know, they're they're sitting in the corner of the of the room, or their desk is in the hallway. They get silent lunch. There, then they start to get to um, in school suspension, etc. Maybe this is their way of responding. You know, they're using the fight. They're fighting. They're they're just you know they just, that's their response to. Maybe they, there's a lot of things going on. Their mm-hmm. body is constantly is stressed mm-hmm. from you know all this all this toxic toxicity around them. Um, or the child who is um, kind of numb and, and is really not engaged in school, maybe is failing, maybe they're, you know, this is a freeze, and that's their constant, you know, go-to. So, of course, I mean, just think about, think about it as, you know, us as a car, like constantly being like, you know, all the, the wheels and, 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 and things inside the car, like constantly spinning and turning, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of what happens to us, you know, our, our blood and our heartbeat and our you know, everything when, when we're in this very stressed stage, well, there's a lot of kids in our school and, and, you know, and adults in in our society who are constantly um, with a lot of stress, with a lot of toxic stress. So to go back, going back to your, your question, some of the effects um, that we see can, can look like negative effects in school, you know, failing a grade, scoring, scoring a lower on tests, being suspended, being expelled, like I was um, just talking about now. Um, But we also see behavior, um, behavior problems. We also see physical and mental health problems, suicidation, you know, runaway behaviors, all these things that we, uh, that we, you know, again, kind of, I'm always thinking about like the bad child, like when we always think like, who's, who's our bad kid, like all those things are sometimes, you know, a, a like a kid telling us in, in a nonverbal way that something is going on.
Now we would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor. Westbridge Solutions is a professional training company focusing on diversity, inclusion, cultural competence, and soft skills trainings. Westbridge Solutions offers a variety of innovative training courses, both in-person and online, live and self-paced. Their clients include corporations, government organizations, healthcare organizations, the nonprofit sector, universities, and individuals such as yourself. Through their rigorous training programs, trainees learn to understand differences, leverage commonalities, and achieve organizational, professional, and personal actualization. To learn more about Westbridge Solutions, please feel free to visit their website at www.westgrouptraining.com or follow them on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Westbridge Solutions, empowering professionals for success. That took me on, just while you were talking about it, it took me on a, a visual journey of kids that I'd seen in school. You know, when I was in elementary school, it was, you know, particularly kids who came from families that that really had almost no money, right? Kids that were really impoverished. Um, I went to public school. And so, you know, I remember a few times just seeing, you know, kids having those silent lunches, kids being put in a corner, just, and I, like, it breaks my heart, you know, but I, I wonder those teachers, they weren't trauma-informed, right? Because maybe those practices themselves, you know, further traumatize these kids, right? Like you were saying with the example of the car, like at some point the car is going to stall, right? Um, we can't just keep running it into the ground and never have, you know, see that, um, what is it? This has happened to my car. This is the only reason I'm using this analogy. But see that check engine light. Right. Yep. And think, yep. you know, we, we can drive it because I was that person. Oh, I can drive it for a little while longer. Right. And yep. then your car gets stuck. And then you wonder why the car is not working. Right. And right. this is what's happening to our children. So even as adults who, who, you know, based on my example to you, who had and who didn't have this vocabulary, but knew that this was scaring me for a particular reason. Right. It was seeing every week something happening with a school shooting or a shooting in a public place, yeah, I, I yeah. didn't realize that that had seeped into my brain and, and had traumatized me. So for children who don't have the vocabulary, don't have um, the maturity emotionally to, to understand this, who don't have an adult that they trust to help them process this, you know, those kind of punitive measures in school can lead to so much more trauma you know, as they go into their formative years and as they become adults in our society. So a lot of times um, when I talk to, to students that I teach, I, I always say to them, because we talk about political science, and I, I always say to them, you know, if we hear about something traumatic happening, you know, like a school shooting, where did society let this particular shooter down, right? They, they committed a crime and they should be punished for that. But what happened to them? Invariably, there's always a story behind it, right? Like, yeah, that's why there there should be no room for bullying. You know, it sounds it sounds like you already have the the mindset of what's happened to you and not what's wrong with you because you know you're not trying to justify for you know if we're talking about a school shooting, you're not trying to justify you know why this person came into the school building with all these guns, with all these homing right. bombs, and and you know created so much harm and, and injury to a community. You're not trying to justify that because that's that's wrong. But if you look at the, the news media, if you look at the stories behind a lot of these shooters, you know they came from from families where 
where there were a lot of hardships. They were bullied. Um, they were victims of, of being bullied. You know, and all a lot of these things that are on our on our, our ACE questionnaire, or even you know maybe m- missing from the original one, but definitely on some of the extended, more extended ACE questionnaires. But they are adverse things that happen in their childhood that um, you know have an effect as children become teenagers, become adults, and become seniors. Right, right. Like uh, people should be punished for the crimes they commit. So I hope that that through the examination of or through asking ACEs questions, um, like you said, in the extended study, right, or in the extended questionnaires, I'm, my hope is that we can identify these, these children in need of help so much sooner so we can avoid these situations right. in the future, right? Because yeah. um, I just, I feel like this is something that can be fixed. This is not society being at the mercy uh, or, or, having to, you know, being at the mercy of of somebody that's trying to harm it. But if we can get to the cause behind those actions, we can potentially save so many people, ourselves included, as a community, right? Um, so I knew I would love this conversation with you. <laughs> I knew I would because I, yeah. I knew I would learn so much from you and and our listeners, I'm sure as well, are really finding this yeah. formative. Yeah, I mean, think about think about those alternative schools. Think about you know, has different different names, but Juvie, um, right, where, right. where all our, our underage um, kids are sent to to who are incarcerated. I mean, think about all the you know those kids. You know, there there could be kids in there with like ten or fifteen aces um, wow. that that um, that are just you know, and and, and being um, here with people who are not adults, who are not being uh, who are not trauma informed, who are who are using practices that are not helping or not, you know, being the buffer to those negative experiences that the child has already coming into these systems with is, is definitely not helping, um, on the long, on the long term. Um, and it's kind of setting them up for for a cycle, a negative cycle. Indeed. And I I would even say, um, based on our discussion thus far, it's probably setting them up, as you said, for the generational, you know, continuance of this particular cycle, but it's also setting them up to have shorter, unhealthier, unhappier lives when we can avoid all of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so let me ask you this, Sandy, what's the highest ACEs score that, that somebody could possibly have, or what's the highest you've seen? So it depends on on, on the questionnaire. And I forgot to mention this earlier, but Georgia just started collecting data. Um, We're kind of new as collecting data. And this is not something that my organization does. Um, It was done by several state and government agencies across um, that work statewide and uh, including the CDC um, um, was was involved. So they uh, started collecting data in 2016. Um, and then we we skipped 17, but we went to 2018 and collected uh, data again. And the results were pretty similar. Um, in Georgia, we found that from the, the pool of people that were surveyed, 58% um, of Georgians reported having at least one ACE. And um, so it was pretty, you know, the original study said 64% reported at least one. So it was pretty, we're pretty similar mm-hmm. along those, those lines. So our questionnaire, oh, and I can't remember right now off the top of my head, I believe we did not ask all those, all 10 questions. I want to say we had eight or nine. So, you know, it depends on who's creating the the questionnaire and what questions they're asking for it. I know there's places in California that have a more extended, you know, they're asking 20 questions, maybe Um, they're asking 15, 
And then also, you know, another thing that they're doing in other places, but there's, I always go to, to California. Um, I feel like they have a lot of, they're amongst the leaders um, in, in ACEs education and, and work. They have um, pediatricians who are asking the questions over there and they're, so it's different, you know, because they're, it's different when you get a questionnaire and it says, um, have you experienced sexual abuse before you turned 18? Then, you know, somebody really going into, okay, but this is what sexual abuse, like it includes molestation, it includes, you know, and it, and it being asked in a different way that more people can comprehend. You know, if we're going back to um, what we were talking about earlier, people who speak English as a second language or even people who need more terminology that's not so medical. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it creates for more, or people are not going to skip the question, you know, because they're being asked. Um, of course, they may not always feel comfortable telling the truth, but, but, you know, we get different, different numbers and different scores. So it just depends on who's creating the evaluation and who's creating the, the, the questionnaire. But often, oftentimes it's 10. Um, if they're using from the original questionnaire, it's 10. It's, uh, that's how many questions are on there. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. But yeah, that does make sense. I mean, the, as you said, um, there are extended versions of the study and also, you know, assuming that different places such as Georgia do them, you know, have them at different times. Um, and being that you said we started in 2016, I'm glad that we started, you know, even <laughs> since 2016, it's better for us to have started than to not have it at all. Right. 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 So I'm hopeful that we'll have as each year goes on. Yeah. Uh, will have a more extended version of that. And I like that you mentioned the pediatricians uh, because honestly, um, as a parent, there's so much I learned just from the pediatrician's visit uh, on things that, you know, um, my husband's an only child and I'm the youngest uh, girl. And so there were things that we just didn't know because we were the babies, right? And then when it came time for us to have kids, we we had to learn so much as, as many parents do, but- yeah. Um, we just felt like we knew absolutely nothing, you know? And so we had <laughs> yeah. classes and, and the pediatrician played such a huge part in, in yeah. helping us recognize, you know, certain milestones, what to look out for, you know, how much milk a baby yeah. should have up until a certain age. Um, yeah. So I yeah. Think and we're, we're already talking to pediatricians about health, right? We're typically talking about physical health with, with, our, with our kids, but it's a great opportunity to, to, to you know, to help parents understand the connection of physical and mental health, how, you know, our brain, our brain gets tired too sometimes. And maybe we need to seek professional help for that. Our mm-hmm. kids' brains get tired too sometimes. So maybe they need to seek professional help. So I think it's a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, 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 um, in the pediatrician setting was kind of um, sparked on by um, an amazing uh, leader in this work, um, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who also has um, Caribbean roots. I want to say from Jamaica, and in California, she she's she is a pediatrician, and she had her own um, center where she started, you know, doing all this work. And um, as of I want to say maybe a year or two, she's now the Surgeon General of California. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, so she has the government entity, and so of course this this you know this is her project. She she expanded ACEs to uh, throughout California, encouraging has an incentive for pediatric. It's not I, I don't believe it's a required. For all um, pediatric centers to um, uh, participate, but it, it, there are incentives um, for those who who participate, and I believe it expands beyond the doctor's offices. There's uh, therapy centers and other other places that are encouraged to, and are uh, may also be receiving that incentive if they if they cooperate and participate and help gather this data for California. 
I love that. That's fantastic. So it seems that California will serve as the model for the rest of the country. Perhaps, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and shout out to all of the Jamaicans listening to the show. Yeah. <laughs> and so that kind of brings us to our next question, Sandy, because I feel like you you answered that partly. I'm just talking about the pediatricians too, in addition to the teachers. So how do we create better outcomes in building better futures for our children? And it sounds like from what, what you're saying that it has to be a comprehensive, holistic effort by people in every segment of society, right? Right, correct. This leads us to a um, to what we uh, refer to as a trauma informed approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks differently in every in every setting, but it starts off with education, with education for for staff, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that they are you know we, we keep saying trauma informed that they're aware that they understand how trauma works. It also includes having adopting trauma-informed policies and practices that they can, um, that staff, uh, volunteers can practice. If you're working with parents, if you're working with kids, maybe you can pass that uh, along. And it, it includes having, you know, resources because one organization, one center cannot do it all. So it also includes having a robust, uh, you know, knowing what's out there in the community, the mental health services, you know, right now with the pandemic, we were just talking about this um, before starting this, you know, what are the 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 food centers um, out there? Who's giving food? Who's giving diapers when families are in so much need right now? You know all those holistic services, and and they can be adapted towards whatever each organization is doing. I was just reading an article yesterday about uh, dent. It's like a an association of dentists in somewhere in Texas, mm-hmm. and how they what what work they you know they committed to being more trauma informed as an association collaborative. And what they are doing and how recognizing, um, it was, it was so powerful. Like, you know, my mind was like, oh my God, I didn't even think about, I I thought about dentists because, you know, I think everybody needs to be informed about what ACEs are, but like it really, the article really uh, laid out what they were, um, what drew them to become more trauma informed. So they were talking about, you know, how intimidating, how scary it can be for somebody who has, you know, for example, gone through uh, sexual abuse, for them to be sitting on that dental chair with somebody standing over you, closing your eyes, your mouth open. And so they developed their own questionnaire, um, uh, you know, I think to accompany the ACEs questionnaire where Mm -hmm. they're pre-screening somebody and they're, you know, seeing if, you know, I think they created like a calm room in the, in the, in the, um, in the dental um, office where they'll send patients to kind of just calm down. And then they have identified staff members who are, who are um, good at talking to, to patients. And they'll sit them down and try to calm them down and talk through what they're going to do. They, um, another practice that they did is they, um, so, you know, I have a marker here, but, you know, that before putting the whatever tool in, in the patient's mouth, they'll say, and I'm about to do this, and this is what this does. So they're really um, letting patients know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And that helps bring down the fear, the anxiety that, you know, being in a dental office may, may be, could be re-traumatizing re- uh, for some people. That's fantastic. I mean, yeah. that is, that's, that's amazing patient care, as well as quality customer service. If you're, if you're thinking about it from, you know, an organizational standpoint, that, that this group of dentists sought to do that, because those are two things I would have not put together at all. And it goes to show how we don't think of trauma per se in our everyday if that's not a particularly traumatic experience for us going to the dentist, right? That is like, that's blowing my mind right now, Sandy, that that is actually processed because 
once you say it, right, and, and you explain what that is, that makes perfect sense. And, and it makes you wonder, why didn't we have this before, right? Um, because we didn't know to name it before. And when you're talking about that, the process as you described it to me is what I've seen at my, my child's dentist. Right. Oh, that's um, great. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It's for different reasons because he is on the autism spectrum. And so um, for children who are on the spectrum where they, you know, too much sensory input might be distracting for them. There is a quiet room where, you know, the dental cleanings mm. such can be performed. My particular little guy doesn't like to lay down on his back. Like he's just never like that when he goes to the dentist or the doctor because he wants to know what's up. Right. <laughs> and so. For him, they they kind of, they coax him into sitting back a little bit and then they work around that, but that they know that about him makes it a much more pleasurable experience for him going to the dentist. And so for little kids who have, um, you know, just anxiety in general about, you know, going to the dentist for adults, like this is, I, I love that you were mentioning that because this is what was happening. And so now he goes into the regular dental room with all the noise and all that stuff, but it's because they sought um, to learn more about him and, you know, see why sitting back would might not be fun for him. Right. And, and I just, I love that visual that you provided because think about, you know, think about how this adds to people's um, well-being and their, their general physical and emotional health, um, our teeth and our gums, when we neglect them, that can lead to things such as heart problems and, and shorten our lifespans. And a lot of people all think about their teeth being related to their heart, but there, there is a direct correlation between your your oral health and yeah. your your heart, right? Yeah. And so, to um, that's me from my interpreter days bringing this back. But but that's what I love about what you said because it it all relates to getting a better health outcome for that patient, right? And that doesn't always necessarily mean a, a good health decision, but it it empowers the patient. It it bonds them closer and creates that rapport with their providers. It lets them be proactive in seeking the care that they need. So I love that this group of dentists did that. That is mind blowing to me. I still love that. So okay, so now we're going to wrap up because Sandy, you know, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> yeah, okay? everyone. We were talking for like a half hour before we even started when we're in the green room. So Sandy and I could talk for hours. But I want to just wrap up right now and and ask you what are two things that you'd like to impart upon our listeners? What would you like them to know? Um, I'd love to invite the listeners to our uh, training that we are the Georgia Center for Child Advocacy, along with Prevent Child Abuse Georgia, developed, um, and we're trying to bring it to the whole state. Um, it's called Connections Matter Georgia, um, and it focuses on educating everybody what our ACE is, what is trauma, how it's connected to how it affects brain development and resiliency how, you know, the power of ACEs and the, the power it, that it can have to our brain development and to our health, but how we can buffer it, how these um, positive, caring, supportive connections can, can serve as a primary buffer to the negative effects of trauma. And from the training, I think um, folks walk out with, you know, whatever hat they're wearing, whether it's a parent hat or whether they're a teacher, whether they're a doctor, you know, some of the things we talked about, dentists, they work with kids. They don't work with kids. They work um, at a restaurant. They work, you know, I think um, it helps understand better, you know, the relationships that we're having with, with others and the relationships that we're having with, with kids. And, and I think it'll help us kind of identify what trauma informed 
uh, approaches we want to bring to our organization. And it's even better if you take it with your whole organization, because that way um, we've had organizations kind of leave our training and then move to the next step, which is kind of developing the practices and, and the policies that they want to now incorporate into their agency, into their school, into their organization, and, you know, really make this a trauma-informed um, agency or organization. So it's, to sign up, you can um, go to our website, georgiacenterforchildadvocacy.org. I know it's all spelled out like That's that. Okay. <laughs> We're going to put it in the show notes, so don't okay. worry about it. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Um, and we have a uh, one or two trainings a month, and um, folks are able to, to register there. And then the second thing, if, if you can't join their training, you've got a lot going on. So our trainings are done virtually right now. But anything, um, I, hope, I hope listeners walk away with the, the slogan. It's not when you know thinking about a child, even an adult, right? To shift our framework from what's wrong with you to what's happened to you, and and you know I can again that can work anywhere, especially with those who work with kids, those who have kids. But even you know at the grocery store, you know if you're 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 checking out and you know the grocery um, the cashier at the grocery store is you know not happy. <laughs> she's upset. She's kind of throwing your things, you know, having that mind frame, mind frame in your head, uh, like you said earlier, you know, leads to, will help us be more compassionate and um, have more empathy um, and just understanding that we don't know, you know, don't take it personally. We don't know what's going on to her right now during COVID. And we have no idea, you know, what's happened to her in her childhood. You know, we're seeing us behaviors in front of us that we don't like, but I think it'll help us with with that that mind frame. Oh my gosh, that is so wonderful. Sandy Chararia, my respected colleague, my friend, thank you for being on the show today. This was, I knew we were going to have fantastic <laughs> This was so informative for me and our audience. So I want to just thank you again for doing the good hard work for being honestly an unsung superhero out there. I'm saving one child, one community at a time through your work every single day, um, especially right now during this pandemic where um, we need you more than ever, right? But I want to just thank you for being on the Global Fluency Podcast. It was so great having you on the show. Thank you for being our special guest today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, it was an honor to be here. And I love talking to you. And, and um, I'm glad that I had this opportunity and this platform. And thank you so much. Thank you. And everybody remember, the Global Fluency Podcast is your podcast. So tell us what you thought about today's episode. Tell us what you learned. Tell us what you didn't know. Um, Tell us how you're going to help become more trauma-informed for yourselves and your community and to help create a more compassionate, a more empathetic, and a more proactive society. So help Sandy do this work in your own way. So once again, remember, let's keep the conversation going. I'm your host for Team Crevacore West, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Global Fluency Podcast. Tune in every Tuesday of the month at 10 a.m. for our latest episode. Connect with us on our social media. You can find us on Facebook at Global Fluency Podcast and on Instagram at Westbridge Solutions, LLC. Global Fluency Podcast. Understanding differences, leveraging commonalities. Let's keep the conversation going, going.